Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. There's about seven and a half billion people in the world. And what I don't think any of us need is another opinion. I think we all need wisdom and more of it. So I'm really glad to welcome Dan Britton to the show. He uh, co wrote a book with Ron Forseth, and the book is called The Wisdom Challenge Life Changing Principles and Lessons from Proverbs and the Life of King Solomon. Dan uh, serves as the chief field officer with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He's written a number of books, and I'm awfully glad to be having him on the show. Dan, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Great to be on the show with you. Thanks. Here's my three favorite Proverbs, and I I refer to them regularly. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool delights in airing his own opinions. Proverbs 15.5 says, A fool hates correction. And Proverbs 12.15 says, The fool thinks he's right all the time. (laughs) (laughs) They're, they're kind of companions, all three of those verses. Yeah, yeah, they're, that's, a, that's quite the, the package of verses. Yeah, wow. Well, I think we all gravitate towards certain Proverbs that we love and appreciate more than others. I, 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 I agree completely. So I love this book that you wrote with Ron. Okay, who worked harder, you or Ron? Uh, since he's not on? Yeah. Ron works harder. How about that? <laughs> I didn't see that answer coming, but wait a minute. I know, yeah. I know, I know. I'm yeah. just trying to live out wisdom, trying to live out wisdom. <laughs> so. <laughs> I like you already, Dan. Let's talk about just why you decided to write this book, why you and Ron said, let's write a book on the life of Solomon and the teaching of Proverbs. Well, Bill, it, it, it was a broken plight. You know, I, I think as I've grown in my faith over the years, some 54 came to Christ at age eight, been walking with Jesus for 45 years, and the more that I see, God loves broken plays, right? Things that weren't planned, they weren't supposed to happen. The wisdom challenge was not supposed to happen. So Ron and I are 20-plus year friends. We, we've known each other for a long time. He was with an organization. I was with FCA. I've been with FCA for over 30 years. And, and we went, man, our two ministries, our two organizations could work together and do amazing things. That's partners. So we met probably a half dozen times strategized, came up with things, and Bill, guess what? Nothing happened. <laughs> like it was it was a belly flop. It yeah. was a stone balloon. It was it was crazy. It was like thing like both of us were like, this is the easiest partnership in the world. And it didn't happen. But guess what God it intended? A friendship. So out from this like trying to make things happen, the broken play was Ron and I became buddies. We became friends. We became best friends. And God allowed us to continue to connect together. And so just quickly, Bill, uh, I just want to share with you that in 2012, Ron called me up in the spring of 2012. He says, hey, Dan, he says, man, my faith has been really, I've been a rocky kind of just dry season. Last month, God led me to the Proverbs. I read through Proverbs. And man, my heart just is just exploding with just passion for Jesus. I'm like, I'm like, Ron, like, that's awesome. I've been doing that for 20 years, been reading through Proverbs, a proverb a day keeps Satan away, you know, 31 Proverbs, we got it. And he's like, no, 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 I want to do next month Proverbs with you. I'm like, 
okay, what, like, read it together? And he goes, no, no, no. You read it, I read it, we go through it together, and then we share with each other through a text or a phone call or email just what God revealed to us. I'm like, well, that sounds simple enough. He goes, yeah, I call this the wisdom challenge. Let's challenge each other in wisdom. From the first of the, uh, the month, we're going to go through Proverbs 1. So, Bill, I read through Proverbs 1. I texted him, hey, God revealed this verse to me, man, planted by the streams. Gosh, you know, we've got to be plugged into the source. He sent back another verse. I was like, man, that's great. We're texting back and forth. We're sharpening each other. I could not wait, Bill, for the next morning to see what God laid on his heart. Was it the same verse that God put on my heart? Was it a different verse? And 10 days into it, I just felt like it was a double blessing. Mm-hmm. Not only was I experiencing God's word, but but Ron was filling me up with how God was meeting Jesus every day. And we did it for 31 days, and that was the wisdom challenge. That That's how it started. I love the accountability uh, element, Dan, as well. This is very cool that you guys were looking forward to every day seeing what wisdom was going to come from each other. Yes, and, and that is a key component. Is uh, For us, we, we kind of say the wisdom challenge is three simple things, is pursue, partner, and pass it on. And that's what it is. It's, it's hey, we're going to make a, a personal commitment to pursue wisdom every day by reading a proverb a day. The second thing is I'm not going to do it solo, isolated, which Christians love to do. <laughs> we love to be isolated, do our own little thing, our own little Bible study, staring at our own spiritual belly button. But instead, we're going to share that with others. And so the partner with is that we're going to partner with others, the power of with. That's when Ron came in. And now that was double fold, the double blessing. And at the end of the month, he challenged me. He goes, hey, so who are you going to do it next month with? And I'm like, with you? <laughs> I think it was so good. Like, let's do it all over again. He goes, no, 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 no. You got to find someone else. You got to pass it on. And I was like, okay, I'll pray about it. So the next day I said, hey, the Lord led my son, Eli, to be able to go through Proverbs together. And he was in high school at the time. And so Eli and I read through the book of Proverbs together, 31 days. And I'm telling you, Bill, like, this is the first time. And again, we have Bible studies. We go to church. We go to FCA camps. We're, like, our house is covered with Jesus. And it was the first time that I saw how Eli looked at Scripture on a daily basis. It gave me a window into his soul. And suddenly, like, my faith, my relationship with Eli grew from simply doing the wisdom challenge with him. So, Dan, you're two for two right now. You've got this deep friendship with Ron, and you've got this new window of understanding with Eli. So you're, you're two for two at this point. Yeah, well, and it continued on. So then after <laughs> Eli, <laughs> I'm like, Okay, who's next? I'm praying about it. And the Lord led me to, to Andre. He's our, at the time, he was our Ukraine national director with FCA, nominal leader who I'm very close with. And I said, Andre, let's do this wisdom challenge. He's like, okay, let's do it. So for 31 days, obviously, he's ahead of me, seven, eight hours, depending on the time zone. And uh, next thing you know, Andre and I are journeying through Proverbs together. God did the same thing with Andre and I. Like, it was, like, amazing. And then he took it, started sharing it with his staff and his friends and his church, and that began to multiply throughout all of Ukraine. So are you— Three find- for three. Three for three. Now, are you finding fresh material with Andre, or are you doing some recycling from Ron and Eli? Oh, you're the first person that's asked that question. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, I mean, you so, know, if you make this incredible discovery, I mean, to me, that's why you pass it on to the next person, because you want to encourage them and uplift them. Yeah, I, I think— 
it's interesting. I, I would say just like you went through and you had three favorite proverbs you yep. pulled out. I would probably say out of the 31 chapters, after doing this dozens of times with dozens of different people, uh, there's my favorite verse of the chapter. And, and obviously you try to lean into that and you go, hey, I'll just share that one because that's one of my favorite. Sure. That's the one my dad taught me or my mom shared with me or I learned in high school. But I would say every time that I do that, Bill, it's like God reveals a new one. Like, for example, this morning, I'm going through Proverbs this month with Calvin, a friend here in Kansas City that I've known for 30 years back in Virginia. He moved back to Kansas City, and we're now reengaged, and we're going through Proverbs together. And there was a verse that popped up this morning. I'm like, that's my favorite verse for t- for this chapter. <laughs> yeah. But guess what? what? The, Lord re- the Lord revealed a different verse. And he challenged me. He's like, are you going to share old manna or are you going to share fresh manna? Nice. And I was like, man, I, so guess what I did? I shared the fresh manna. I, it's like, I'm not going to go back to the well. I'm going to share what God revealed to me about, hey, we, we determine our plans, but God determines our steps. And so we plan, God determines, like the sovereignty of God. That was my message that I shared with Calvin today. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, I love Proverbs. My little nephew who just graduated uh, from eighth grade, he went to a Christian school, and one of the um, prerequisites, if you start in first grade, is by the end of eighth grade, you will have memorized the entire book of Proverbs. What? That is amazing. Yeah, and he can nail the whole thing. It's frightening. So I digress. I'm talking about my, my, my nephew's son right now. So let's, let's get back to your book you wow. and Ron's book. Um, let's talk about the life of Solomon. Um, how, do, how do we sum this up? Well, Pretty, it's hard to sum up, right? It is, but, I mean, wild. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Solomon, who is known as Mr. Wisdom, wasn't too wise in how he lived. I mean, you know, with the, what, 600 wives? thousand wives, 600 concubines, like he, he didn't live. It feels like at times you look at his life, more failure than success, but yet he's known as the guy that prayed the prayer and didn't ask for the riches, didn't ask for glory, didn't ask for power, but actually prayed for understanding of heart. Actually, it says in the scripture that he prayed that God will grant him understanding of heart. So the simplicity of praying that prayer, which I think Sometimes we, we need to pray that on a daily basis. God, give me understanding of heart. Give me the wisdom. And James spelled it out right very clear that we shouldn't even ask. Like, we shouldn't we should ask generously, and God gives generously. Like, he won't just give you a little bit, but if we pray, we ask God of the universe for wisdom, he'll give back generously. And I think the biggest problem, here Solomon maybe didn't put a lot of wisdom into practice, it's here we as followers of Christ and believers, we read Proverbs, which is mostly written by Solomon. We go to the source and we say, this is not about knowledge or just information. It's about application. And I believe wisdom is only wisdom if it's infused into relationships. So in our book, we talk about, Ron and I talk about wisdom minus relationships equals nothing. Wisdom plus relationships equals impact or influence. And, Bill, if, if wisdom is not infused and integrated into relationships, it's nada, zero. It has to be in the context of relationships of how we live that out. And I believe that's where we, as we pursue 
Solomon's writings in Proverbs, we need to have that application and stretch us beyond our comfort zone so that we might grow in our faith. All right, Dan, I'm going to take a little break. You've got three adult children, two sons-in-laws, so that means you had the wisdom to save for weddings as father of the bride. Yes. <laughs> She's got, we, we, so actually, in our third one, our son got married uh, this past September okay. to a COVID wedding. And uh, so we got all three kids married and graduated in five years. Come on. <laughs> you have my That's ad- wisdom. You That's have, wisdom. Yeah, it is wisdom. You have my admiration. Let me take a break. Dan Britton's our guest, and he's co-written a book uh, called The Wisdom Challenge, Life-Changing Principles and Lessons from Proverbs and the Life of King Solomon. We'll be right back. Dan Britton, he is, serves as the field chief officer with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and he, along with Ron Forseth, has written a great book called The Wisdom Challenge, Life-Changing Principles and Lessons from Proverbs in the Life of King Solomon. Uh, Dan, I'd love to get back to some of these guidelines that you have in the book, uh, the, the three elements of the Wisdom Challenge, which is pursue, partner, and pass it on. I just want to ask you about the pursue part. Does that mean that we should be looking for people to do this challenge with? Yeah, we we actually, uh, on our website, we just created an action plan that uh, you can download that talks about just trying to begin to make a list of those people God has put on your heart that you believe you can enter into relationship to say, hey, I want, I want to go through Proverbs together. And I'm telling you, Bill, like I, I've done this dozens and dozens of times. Ron has, has done it longer than I have. He's done it hundreds of times. And the thing that I've experienced is nobody ever says no. Like no one says, I, I don't want more wisdom. I don't want to journey with you through Proverbs. Like, it's like almost, when is anyone going, hey, I'd like to pray for you. And they go, no, I don't want prayer. Don't pray for me. You know, yeah. hey, I, hey, do you want to pursue wisdom? No, I, I just choose not to pursue wisdom. Thank you very much. Go find someone else. Every person that I've asked, and said, absolutely, thank you for the invitation. Mm-hmm. So we believe, we believe, Bill, that it's, it's an invitation to wisdom. And it's not really about, hey, doing it with me. It's so much as I'm inviting you into this journey to grow in wisdom. What do you say? Yeah. And everybody says yes. Like, like let's go. Yeah. Dan, why does God put such incredible value on wisdom? Well, it, it's interesting. I, in, in the book, we talk about the wisdom promise. And the wisdom promise, another way to say it is the nothing promise, because twice in Proverbs, both in Proverbs 3, verse 15, and then later on in Proverbs eight eleven, it literally says there's nothing more value. There's nothing more valuable than wisdom. All the rubies, all the jewels, all the riches in the world, there is nothing that tops wisdom. 
And so twice the nothing promise or the wisdom promise says there is nothing that can come even close, not even a close second to wisdom. And and we believe that if, if we value wisdom, if we look at wisdom in that light, then we're we're gonna we're gonna pursue it every day. Like we're gonna and not only Bill, not only pursue it, but we're gonna share it. We're gonna multiply wisdom by creating a wisdom tree, wisdom legacy, by sharing it with other people. And why would you not want to do that? Totally. Yeah, that's right on. So, Dan, I know it's important to have a, a very healthy fear of the Lord, but having that can lead to wisdom, right? Yeah, yeah throughout the entire Proverbs, one thing that a lot of people like to pass over is the beginning of wisdom starts where? With the fear of the Lord. Right. Like, it, 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 it's plain, it's stated, Solomon mentions it over and over again. <clears throat> it's simply the fear of the Lord. And we kind of, I would say we watered that down a little bit. And we don't really address it. We kind of go, oh, well, you know, that was back then. Or, hey, I'm best friends with Jesus. And, you know, you can't fear your best friend. And I think we miss the, the, the relevance and the power and the magnitude when Solomon says wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, Phil, how you grew up. But, man, my dad graduated from the Naval Academy. <laughs> I had two older brothers. And when my dad implemented his discipline, whoo. It was fear, <laughs> the fear of dad, right? Like right. the fear of dad. And his boundaries were, were solid and, and, and clear. And we knew that, hey, we could operate within these boundaries. But, man, if we stepped outside that boundaries, there was a price to be paid. Right. There was a healthy and full understanding of the fear of my dad at Britain, right? Now, we knew he did that because he loved us not because he wanted to take something from us. And when we operated within those boundaries and we obeyed what he laid out as the family guidelines, we had full life. We had the abundance and the joy to operate within that. Well, in the same way that I did that with our kids, same way with our relationship with God the Father, that he has very clear boundaries. There's a fear of the Lord that we stepped outside the boundaries. He disciplines those he loves. And we need to operate within those boundaries. And when we do, we experience the abundant life, John 10, 10 says, the full life, the extra large life that we can operate within those boundaries. So let's not diminish or water down what it means to have a healthy understanding of the fear of God. Mm -hmm. Dan, on the cover of your book, The Wisdom Challenge, is a picture of a tree. So maybe you would talk about that. Does that have a significance? What is a what is a wisdom tree? Well, we, we have a full chapter on the wisdom tree, and we talk about the last part about pass it on, that when you pass it on, you're planting another tree. And I remember when I was doing some reading, and, and I found this, this concept that they said, hey, the true fruit of an apple tree is not more apples. It's another tree. Mm. And I went, I had to like, go, whoa, wait a minute. Like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> like that, that is a huge spiritual concept that it's not about producing more fruit. It's about producing other trees. And so the wisdom tree concept is simply that I want to plant other trees, not just put more fruit on my tree. Mm-hmm. And we know that when we're passing on wisdom, Bill, 
that actually the true fruit isn't more fruit on my tree, but my fruit is growing on other people's tree. Like, imagine that, like my investment into other people that I'm discipling, I'm developing through the wisdom challenge or other tools and resources and concepts. And we're making disciple makers that our fruit is actually growing on other people's tree. And then they're actually planting other trees. Now that continues on for wisdom's legacy. Mm-hmm. So as we talk about wisdom, I, I have to backtrack in my head a little bit and think that are you taking knowledge and then applying knowledge? And that is in fact wisdom. I'm, yeah, just, I, I'm just thinking out loud here, Dan. So help me. You can, you can yeah, disagree yeah. with me all you want. No, no, I, I like it. <clears throat> Cause Again, it has to have has to have application, and I think there's probably a million definitions of wisdom, right? We, you can look up your favorite teacher, your favorite pastor, your favorite writer, and come up with a million different definitions of of wisdom. For me, when I read Chuck Swindoll, who I listen to his podcast all the time, love his books, love the way he teaches, amazing man of God, finishing strong to the very end. So many people are crashing and burning these days, and yet he's, he's on the straight and narrow. And Chuck Swindoll says, wisdom is simply seeing things as God sees them. And like I'm like, that is a clean, simple definition, is, is if I can put the filter, the God filter on, so everything that I see, everything that I do runs through like, hey, approaching as if God would enter into this situation, that's wisdom. And I believe that's a great definition of wisdom for us as we step in and go, okay, it's not just knowing, but it's knowing and doing. It's putting that into action. Again, it's going back to infusing it into relationships so that we can be able to understand God's intention and purpose for our life. So, Dan, we just have 90 seconds left. Tell listeners about uh, the Wisdom Challenge. How How do they do it? How do they get access to it? Well, it's, it's, well, you don't have to buy the book to do it, but we'd love for you to buy the book to, to, to do it. We think it's a great tool to pass it on to someone, encourage someone. It takes 45 minutes to read. It's a short seven-chapter book. At the end, we have a, uh, a little journal section. But Bill, you can go to wisdomchallenge.com. It's a great website that we've created that has actually, you could actually start your own wisdom tree. You can put people's names in it and begin to see how God's using your legacy and your influence to multiply wisdom. We have action plans. We have videos. There's so much there on the website that you can be able to begin to journey. But I would say this, Bill, it's not about the book. It's not about the website. It's simply making a commitment saying, I want to pursue wisdom daily. I'm going to choose to partner with someone, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, maybe a family member, maybe a coworker and then be able to pass it on. That's it. Pursue, partner, pass it on. I love it. Stop taking calls. We have a winner. Thank you so much, Dan Britton. Thank you. Thank you, Bill, (laughs) for having me on. It's been a delight uh, talking to you. Thank you for your book. The book is called The Wisdom Challenge, Life-Changing Principles and Lessons from Proverbs and the Life of King Solomon. Take a short break, and we'll be right back with lots more. Show with Bill Arno, drive time, drive time, the 
let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. It is so easy to talk about Dr. Ann Bradley. She is a regular guest, and I love having her on. She is an economist. She is the uh, vice president of economic initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. She's also a uh, George Mason University professor and a visiting scholar uh, at the Bernard Center for Women, Politics, and Public Policy. She's also uh, contributed to books. She's written books. She's uh, also a blogger. She does just about everything. I love her when she comes on my show. And welcome back. Well, thank you for having me, Bill. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Well, I love talking economics with you uh, because you bring so much sanity to the discussion, which I'm, I'm a big fan of. And yeah. I'm looking at the way the economy right now is trying to rebound and... And there's so many businesses trying to get on both feet again. And I was thinking to myself, and this is maybe an oversimplistic question, Anne, but why are businesses so important to a country's economy? Mm, They are, aren't they? Yes. So important. And, you know, I actually think that when we we think about business, some people say they're pro-business. And I think, you know, even saying that, we have to be careful because what we really are is pro-consumer. And businesses in a market economy serve consumers. So I like to say I'm pro-consumer. And and to that end, I'm pro-business. Because what it means is that I want a society where firms have ideas about and, and make discoveries about how to better serve people, give them what they need and give them what they want and find better ways to do that. And so in a market economy, there's a lot of competition in discovering that, right? So when you go to buy, whether it's a coffee or a mattress or, you know, just your groceries, there's a lot of stores that you have to choose from. There's a lot of businesses and each business, they want you to come into their doors And that's important for an economy because when we have that competition among firms, um, it means that they have better incentives to give us quality products at lower prices. And this is good for everyone, but it's particularly good for people who have, you know, lower incomes um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, they can afford more. And so um, business is just uh, really an important part of a dynamic, mobile, growing economy. And I would say entrepreneurship, which is what, you know, fuels business. Um, is just really the seed of economic growth. You have to have it. Um, we need more of it. Uh, some countries don't have much of it at all. Right. When I see the economy coming back and I see there seems to be a scramble for products, um, not only consumer products but industrial products, it made me wonder, again, what is the difference between those two? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess it depends on what market we're talking about here, but a consumer product is kind of a final product. So when you think about, you know, um, something you buy at the grocery store, like a box of cereal, for example, there's, you know, that's the final product, but that final product represents a lot of intermediate goods. Um, There's a lot of goods that went into what made that cereal box full of cereal, you know, kind of appear on the shelf. And so there's manufacturing lines, there's machinery, there's equipment, there's all sorts of things that happen in the process of taking grain from the fields and, you know, whatever else they put in cereal, sugar, mm-hmm. um, you know, food coloring, all that kind of stuff. And, and those are then uh, turned into the final product. And so industrial products can be these kind of intermediate um, products that help give us our final products. And that can include lots of 
technological processes and equipment and manufacturing equipment and things like this. Yeah. When I think of products like lumber, and I know that's prices have been up and down over that lately, and yes. I'm thinking you go to the big box store to buy some lumber and the prices are up, and I think, well, it's a consumer product, but it's also an industrial product. And I, I was just thinking, right. I know Ann will sort this out for me. Yeah, so this is what I mean when I say it depends on, you know, how it's sold and who's buying it. So when you think about a home builder, they buy large quantities right. of lumber, right, because they're using it as an input into the supply of homes. If you're, if you're you know, buying um, a table, um, the people who make tables and other types of wood furniture, uh, that lumber is an input into the production of their final goods. But if you're you or me – and we go to Home Depot and we say, hey, you know, I want to buy some lumber because I'm going to put shelf in my pantry or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that is a consumer good. And so it depends on you know, its destination in the economy. I think that's how we think about its final destination and how we qualify the goods. Mm-hmm. I opened up my first bank account not too far from my house. I think when I was about eight or nine, maybe, because I was going to mm-hmm. save money and I was going to make my little $2 deposits and... And have my little pass, my little passbook that they would put in this machine, and it would type out how much money I had. And I, I was so proud of that. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. You know, twenty four dollars at one point in that account. So I was thinking, I am, I am headed for success. <laughs> destined for greatness. <laughs> destined for greatness. Yes. And then I just got this notice that this bank is being gobbled up by another big bank, and and they're being they're merging. And I thought, okay, um, I, I guess I forget sometimes the role that banks play in the economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they have a very important role for all of us. I mean, we started this conversation talking about business. And so when you think about the connection of business and capital, so a firm or a person has an idea for an enterprise that they want to begin, whether it's a small business or you know a merger or buying a franchise or something like this. And so we need capital uh, to be able to finance um, our investment into the future. And so banks play a really important role in providing um, the capital for those investment opportunities. And so, of course, what, you know, kind of independent banks do is absolutely connected to what the central banking system of any country does. And so predictability and stability and value in the currency, those things all matter for how your local bank can function. Um, and, you know, what it enables you to do. So you're right. When you started that savings account, you know, what were you doing? You were you were actually putting cash um, into the market. And so those banks now have cash holdings and they can lend them out for other mm-hmm. purposes. And so that's, you know, the, the role of banks provide uh, liquidity in an economy. Um, and that's very important for longer term business and other types of investment. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking of the interest rates that banks used to offer, and I don't know, explain to me again why that changes and why that has changed so much over over time. Over, over time. No, I, so, I, used, I used to have like a fairly nice little return, just a, a monthly interest rate at banks, and now it's like point oh 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 one percent Yeah. Well, so, you know, the, we, we need to think about the interest rate as a price. And so I think to me, that's the most helpful way to understand it. And so the interest rate is the price um, that a bank will offer you to hold your money. 
And so the interest rate is based on the supply and the demand for money. And so I, I think, too, kind of we, we think about the Federal Reserve and, you know, kind of central banks, and it all seems so far removed and abstract from us. Um, but I think what we have to think about is, you know, what is it that makes you decide to either spend your money today or to save some of it for later? And so most people do a little bit of saving and a little bit of spending, right? They split it up. But what alters that portfolio of saving and spending? It's mm-hmm. the interest rate, right? Because it's making it either um, more attractive for you to spend now or it's making it more attractive for you to save and spend later. And so interest rates are going to alter um, that portfolio of saving and consumption in an economy. And of course, there's no, in a market economy like the United States, it's important to know that even the Federal Reserve does not directly control interest rates. They can alter them. They can affect them. And of course, they do lots of things, open market operations and all these things. They have relationships with other banks. Um, the, you know, the way reserves are held and all these types of things ultimately influence uh, the interest rate that you as a consumer see. Um, and so this is very important for a business investment. It's very important for long-term savings um, in an economy. And so, you know, as you noted, you know, these rates change over time. And often they can change for a couple of reasons. They can change because our preferences over saving and spending are changing. But they can also change because of government interventions in, in the money supply that are changing the incentives for people to save or spend. So often federal, uh, excuse me, central banks will alter interest rates um, to the extent that they can. Again, they don't directly control them, but they will alter them through these other mechanisms that they have to try to adjust, you know, inflation rates and adjust interest rates and things like this. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ann Bradley, you're an economics professor. What did mom and dad Bradley say to you when you were a young girl regarding saving money? Um, they didn't make me sit in an econ class, but they did say, <laughs> "All right, don't don't spend it all." Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a very and I have little kids. My son is eleven, and you know, he gets money, and it's like setting his pocket on fire. <laughs> he can't wait to get it into a store, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and so, but you know, so that's part of teaching him to think about giving, saving, and spending, and it's not just about you know, you get $10 or something and you just run out and it flies out of your pocket as fast as it went in. Right. Um, and I think that's what my parents tried to teach me as well is, and I mean, I'm so old that we had a checkbook that I, my dad taught me how to balance <laughs> my checkbook. And I think my mom still keeps a checkbook that she balances, even though she mostly doesn't use, you know, write checks, but this was kind of the way we did things. I remember a day when you could go to a restaurant and you could pay with a check. You can't do that anymore. Yeah. So um, being uh, judicious over how much money we have, how much money we're spending. I actually think the digital aid makes that age makes that very easy because my bank sends me um, a pie graph chart and I look at it and I'm like, whoa, I spent more than I thought I did, right? They just kind of <laughs> neatly compartmentalize uh-huh. what I'm spending and what I'm saving. And so they're, I mean, but it's important to be kind of thoughtful about that because if we have no incentive to save, then we won't. And then when the future comes, we suffer real problems. I do think this is a problem in the American economy is that um, we, we want easy fixes. We want things very quickly. Um, I think credit cards are good, so I'm not saying that they're bad, but I think we get deluded into believing that credit cards are just like having some sort of cash endowment and that you can just spend it and, you know, kind of the bill comes later and so I'll think about it later. And I think that 
we have to be very careful about thinking about wisdom, you know, in our saving and spending and giving patterns. Yes. Yeah, I appreciate that. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. She's the uh, Vice President of Economic Initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. She's a George Mason University professor and a regular uh, guest of my show. I'll take a short break and be right back. Lots more with Ann. Raising a young family and being an economics professor, Dr. Ann Bradley has made time to talk to me today, and I sure appreciate that. She's an editor and contributing author to Counting the Cost, Christian Perspectives on Capitalism, and for the least of these, a biblical answer to poverty. She is at the Institute of Faith, Works, and Economics. You can head over that to tifwe.org. Learn more about Ann. So, um, Ann, I want to uh, go back to some questions regarding the the new budget that's coming out or the the new proposal for more additional spending and as we go into more and more debt i'm wondering who in the world backs the money supply in the u.s well this is an important question because basically it's fiat currency which means that it doesn't it is not backed by a precious metal by gold or silver which we have done in the past um, and, and when the money supply is backed by a precious commodity that has real value, then that necessarily reduces the government's ability to tinker with the supply of, of that resource and to change its value. And so when money is just really backed by nothing except kind of trust in the Federal Reserve, um, and that's, that's really how kind of the U.S. dollar works. And, and to be fair – uh, the, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, operates in a very transparent, for the most part, way compared to other central banks. So it's always relative comparison. Um, and they pers- they don't pursue volatile hyperinflation in the past and all these types of things, which means the dollar has held its value. It's the world's reserve currency, which means lots of people want to hold the dollar. Um, in fact, in countries where the currency has become valueless, many people adopt the dollar as a medium of exchange. And so the dollar has traditionally been a currency that people want to hold. But, um, you know, that is predicated on people continuing to trust the U.S. government and the decisions it makes um, over the money supply and over its role in general in monetary policy. And so, you know, I guess I would say that this is a house that could potentially be built on sand. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you have a fiat currency like this, lots of things can go wrong. And just because we've trusted the U.S. dollar and the U.S. government in the past doesn't mean that people will always trust it in the future, and it certainly doesn't mean it will always hold its value. So this is always predicated on the behavior um, and the predictability of the currency and the behavior of the central bank. Mm-hmm. And I, when you said the currency today is not backed by precious metals, I think I remember, uh, and I think I still have a $20 bill that says on it, silver certificate. Mm, yes. Because it was like yes, an authentic bill that could be redeemed for actual silver. Yes. In fact, 
um, this is, a, you know, related, but there's many, many things in the past that have been used as money. Basically, all that's required for something to be used as money is that people are willing to accept it in, in exchange. And so historically, you've looked at things like seashells, salt, spices, uh, gold and silver, other precious metals. Uh, it's really amazing, the history of money. Uh, an economist uh, wrote an article about cigarettes being used as the form of currency in prison. Oh, sure. And you've seen ma- many movies where you see that play out, right? Yeah. So when you don't have access to cash, right. you use something that people just have to accept that it has value. Um, and it can be used in exchange. And so there's lots of things historically that have been used as money. Um, currency is valuable because it's transportable. Everybody wants to hold it, right? Can you imagine thinking about, you know, kind of walking around with a big bag of salt or something like this and exchanging <laughs> it? Or, yeah. you know, we used to use agriculture, so having a cow. I mean, these things are very hard to transport. You can't cut a cow in half without destroying the cow, all these types of things, right? So currency is very um, user-friendly in this way, but it has to retain its value. And so when it's backed by a precious metal, when you can go into the bank at any time and on demand, you can say, I want to redeem this for silver. That keeps the central bank accountable in a very disciplined way. Interesting. I'd like to ask a rather lofty question that I don't think you can answer. So with that as a I setup. I love those kinds of yeah, questions. Yeah, I know. With that as a setup, <laughs> Anne, um, when, when have we borrowed too much? And now it's just obvious to everybody something has to change. I mean, just the federal debt is just comically out of control. In it's my over, humble opinion. Yes, over 100% um, of GDP. <laughs> yeah. So as a percentage of GDP, I mean, I think this is the question of political economy. It's both an economic question. It's a question of policy and politics. And um, I'm very worried about this okay. in, in, as we head into the future because it is true. I mean, and if you look across the globe, we're not even the highest um, so there's other countries like Japan, for example, that have higher debt-to-GDP ratios than we do, but um, that doesn't mean it's a good idea either, right? And so if you look at a country like Greece, um, you can become insolvent, and it is a it is a reality that the you know kind of you can't create money out of thin air, you can't create prosperity out of thin air, and so um, I think the attitude of Americans over the last hundred years in terms of their expectations of what they believe their government can do and what they believe their government should do um, have walked. (laughs) I think those things have walked away from economic realities. They're divorced from the truths of economics. I think there's very, there, there very much are limits to policy and what government can do. And there's something in economics called Wagner's law. And what it shows you is that as National income grows across industrialized economies, the size of government grows. So this is not just a U.S. problem. It Mm -hmm. seems to be a ubiquitous problem. And I think it's because we believe we can ask more of our state because our state is more well-financed. But the problem, there's a couple of problems. One is that the bigger the state activity and consumption gets, it means it's going to crowd out private affairs. It's going to crowd out charities and philanthropies. And so there's real kind of social problems that are created when, you know, kind of debt is accumulated because of spending over such a long term. So I do think, to your question, it's unsustainable. I think the real question you're asking, I can't answer, which is when, what is the trigger? What is the tipping point where 
you know, we start to kind of really have significant problems. Um, and these are, bring demographic issues, right, as you have more people retiring. And this is what one of Greece's problems was. So they had very generous public pensions. They had a large um, population of boomers that were retiring, but they had large levels of unemployment among their youth. And so that the problem is, if you're going to spend like that, you need a thriving working population of people who you could tax to finance that spending, to finance those liabilities that are on the book, things like Social Security in the United States and Medicare. So these are real problems because mm -hmm. we promised them to people. And in the case of Social Security, we have actually taken people's money. We meaning the government, <laughs> not me, right? <laughs> but the government has taken people's money, promised to hold it for them. Mm -hmm. And this was an anti-poverty measure. It sounds good on paper, but the problem is is that you have the kind of the fox guarding the hen house, as they right. say. And so the government has spent the money rather than saving it. And so now there's nothing. And so this is a real problem into the future for retirement. People are going to work longer. Uh, I think that there's just real social problems that are going to emerge over the next couple decades that we're going to have to deal with if we don't curb our spending. The way to curb the debt is to curb the spending yeah, and I don't to reduce the size of government. Yeah, and I don't want to create too much whiplash for my listeners, but just to put things in context, in 1970, the national debt was $450 billion. Yes. What is it now, I, like $27 trillion? Yeah, and it took us – I think I read a statistic the other day. I might get it wrong, but it was something like it took us the first 195 years or something to get to the first trillion. And then it just was exponential in the trillions. And the other problem with this, I'll say, Bill, is that it's so abstract to us to think about, oh, what's the difference between $27 trillion and twenty? Because it's like funny money or monopoly yeah, right. money. Um, that I think we just, and we, we, you know, people say, well, I have a good life and things are seeming to go generally well. And so maybe it's not that big of a problem. And so this is what I'm talking about is I think we have unrealistic expectations about the, what government can actually, what we can ask government to do for us. And when we ask it to do more, not only does it do more, but then it wants to do more. And so you get this bloat and this bureaucracy, and I think that crowds out what's really good things that are going on in the market and in you know, the philanthropic sector as well. And many young people are attracted to socialism. What is, yeah. what is it about capitalism they see as the downside? Well, you saved like the best question for last year because I could talk all day about okay. that question. <laughs> right. um, I, here's what I think. I think socialism, on paper, it sounds like a really good idea. So that's the first thing. I think I think it, you know, we're going to have more equality. We're going to have a more equal distribution of things and we're going to do it without totalitarianism. That's the promise. That's the modern promise of socialism, kind of democratic socialism. So I think that sounds good on paper. I get more equality, I get more stuff. I don't get tyranny. So people say sign me up. So I think one of the problems is we forget the history of the past. I don't think you'd see a lot of people saying that for example in 1992. After the fall of the Soviet Union, you have all these Soviet breakout economies scrambling to try to figure out how they're going to make their economies work. And people believed that capitalism had won the day, that markets had won the day, that private property rights had won the day. Um, and I think we forget. So I think there's a younger contingent of the population that didn't live through that. I lived through it. And so that had a profound impact on me. And I think not living through that, maybe you don't have the same context for the dangers and evils of socialism and communism. 
Um, and, and again, I think the other issue that I already brought up is that it sounds good on paper because of the positive spin that's being put on it, which is that somehow you can have socialism but not have tyranny. That, to me, reflects just a complete lack of understanding in economics, to put it nicely. I mean, you can't centrally control resource allocation and not have the use of violence and force. Those two things always go together. So I think the way to overcome this is to dispel the myths about democratic socialism and teach people the economic way of thinking. So, Anne, are parents and grandparents not stepping up to do that job and they're getting too much of it at liberal secular universities? (laughs) Well, and maybe even in high school, Um, you know, maybe we're not we're not in history classes talking about the dangers of, of communism and socialism. Um, I think there, there are ad, ad agendas at work, both in primary education and certainly in higher education. I think uh, what we need to do there is also support academic freedom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because college especially is supposed to be a time when you really subject yourself to ideas that might be, you know, sound terrible to you. That's yeah. what college is about is really that critical thinking. So I think that's what we're losing Yeah, is, you know, let's think critically and assess and then decide. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, Dr. Ann Bradley's in my guest. That wraps up our show for the day. Thanks so much for being with me. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.